0: Get excited about new series' beginning, and um, this one is no different as i 've had the chance to study over the last few weeks and look at, at through a, a hopefully a fresh lens the story of the prodigal in luke fifteen it 's once again captured my heart and reminded me of the story that we find ourselves in as as human beings and specifically and uniquely as followers of the way of jesus and My hope is that over the next six weeks, this story would be um, an invitation back to you, back into the greatest story ever told. And sometimes we need that invitation, don't we? We we need that that reigniting of our faith so when we sing, awaken my soul, it's not because we've never been awake before. It's because sometimes we get caught in the monotony of life, don't we, and the everyday and the pain and the hurt, and so sometimes we need that that invitation from God, and that's my intention and my hope over the next six weeks. In 2015, there was a a startup company called Lucera Labs, and they launched their Kickstarter campaign, and over the few weeks that the campaign ran, they raised $164,375 backed by 712 people, some of whom may be in this room right now in hopes of sleeping a little bit better. That was the invitation. It was a a new twist on an old invention, a a new way of looking at something we all have in our rooms in some way, shape or form. See uh, Lucero Labs, they um, invented a different kind of alarm clock. Uh, the alarm clock is different in that it, it senses your body heat to try to figure out where exactly the target is, the person that it's tasked with waking up. And then through a series of either really strong beams of light that are designed to simulate the sunlight coming up or in the window, or if that doesn't work, um, which a lot of you that wouldn't work for, um, me either. Um, it's a focused sort of high-tech beam of sound that's designed to only hit the person it's trying to wake up and to let Ryan over here just keep sleeping. Anybody want to get this for a loved one? Okay. You don't need, don't, you don't need to call him out, but you can just sort of, you can point if you want to that you know somebody who needs this. And that somebody is you because you sleep next to somebody like me who sets six alarms every single day. It'll be an intervention next service when my wife is here. It's interesting. If you were to look at this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15, I I think this is a good picture of what he's doing. Because a lot of humanity, you may be included in this, we We walk around in the busyness and the noise of life to the extent that we can't hear, we can't see, we can't respond to the goodness of God. And so Jesus told these stories. There's three of them in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to do sort of an overview of those three today. But Jesus told these stories specifically for the purpose of awakening people to the grand story that they were living in. He, he wanted to be like uh, Lucero Labs in waking people up. See, Jesus was a master teacher. He doesn't get nearly enough credit for being brilliant. We talk about Jesus in a lot of different realms, but he was Brilliant. But you can only teach somebody who's awake. I, I can remember when I was in college, I was in a psychology class. Uh, they were talking about sleep deprivation, and I fell asleep in the very front row of that class. <laughs> I woke up and the irony hit me. I'm like, I just slept through an entire lecture about sleep deprivation. I should have listened. I think I have. Here's Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention is to tell stories that awaken humanity. In fact, after telling one of his parables, his disciples pulled him aside and said, Hey, Jesus, can you explain to us why in the world you tell stories? Why do you tell parables? If you have Bible, open with me to Luke cha- or Matthew chapter 13. That's where we're going to start today. And then we're going to flip over to Luke 15 here in a few moments. But we need to set the stage. We need to ask the question, why would arguably the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the planet spend the majority of his public ministry telling stories? What was his intention? Why would he do that? And what can we learn from the stories that he told? Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Here's the way it reads in the ESV. It says, then the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to whom? To them. So, so Jesus, you talk to us one way, but you talk to the crowds in a different way. Why do you speak to them in parables? Parables. It's this really parable, it's this really interesting Greek word, it's two words put together, para, or to come alongside of, and balo, or to cast or to throw. It's this picture of bringing a story alongside of a reality in order to illuminate the truth that is before their very eyes. Ooh, Jesus you're with us. When you're with us and we're sort of alone and private, you talk one way. But when you're in front of the crowds, in front of people who don't yet know you, you speak in a different fashion. You throw these stories alongside of these ever-present realities. Well, why, do you, why do you do that? And here's Jesus' answer. I'd argue it's one of the most misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture, Here's what he says. He says, and to them, he answered. And so the pictures of disciples are with Jesus uh, after he's told the parable of the sower or the parable of the seeds. To you, to you disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You're, You're with me. You're asking me questions. We're living together. Every waking, breathing moment we're walking together, you've started to grasp the secrets of what I'm doing. Literally, in the Greek, it's the mystery that I'm revealing that God is way better than you think. But to them, to people who don't have this access, to people who haven't yet come to this acknowledgement to this faith, to them it has not been given. For the to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So in verse 12, Jesus says, all of humanity finds himself on one of two paths. They're either moving towards God or they're moving away from God. We we never stay in one place, Jesus says. We're either growing in our faith or we're drifting. We're we're either walking with God in more passion and more vigor and more life, or we're growing more and more cold. That's what Jesus says. So he sets up this us and them. I've been with you teaching you, but the other people, they they haven't gotten that. And so then he tells you why he tells parables. He says this, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, here's the way I've heard this passage taught. Jesus says to the disciples, listen, I tell parables in order to confuse people. I tell parables so that people have no clue what I'm talking about. I have parables. I tell parables because I want people to walk away knowing less about God than they did when they first got here. Now, if you were to just look at the passage and read it, you could get there given the language, because this word because can be taken of one of two ways. You, you could get there. Now, let me just ask a question, though. Does that interpretation of this passage make sense, given who Jesus was and given what Jesus's intentions were? I mean, if you wanted to confuse people, if you wanted to leave people in the dark, just leave them in the dark. Don't come at all. Don't say anything. Just let them be. They'll be in the dark. See, but you could also read this passage, I think, more accurately And this is why I speak to them in parables. I'm telling them stories because they're walking around in the world that's God-bathed and they don't see it. And they're hearing the anthem of heaven all around them, but they don't hear it and they don't understand it. So, Jesus says, I Tell them parables. I tell them stories to wake them up, to to rattle their cages a little bit. The um, author, William Taylor, at the end of the 1800s wrote a book entitled The Parables of Our Lord, and in that book he said, the purpose of parabolic teaching is clear. Its aim is to elucidate truth, not obscure it. Still less to conceal an issue or uh, to sever to se- a severe punishment. He goes, no, no, no. Jesus is teaching in order to paint a picture, to throw something alongside of something else and go, do you get it? Do you see it? Wake up. Wake up. That was his intention in sharing the parables. I think Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, nails it. Here's what he says. Same passage we just read. It says, And Jesus replied, You've been given insight into the kingdom of God. You have. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there's no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell stories. To create readiness. To nudge people towards receptive insight. Because in their present state, they can stare until doomsday and not see it, listen till they're blue in the face, and not get it. So I tell them a story. So that they'll maybe, just maybe, they'll get it. Indeed, if Jesus' intention was to conceal things rather than to reveal things, I beg you to study the end and the goal of the parables. Uh, the parable of the sower, he says, listen, that my kingdom is going to increase 100 fold, which means that he was highly unsuccessful if his goal was to conceal. See, see here's the Here's the awakening that these stories invite us to. Jesus, consistently in his ministry, he used parabolic storytelling to create spiritual awakening. Certainly, there were some who couldn't receive it. Uh, There were some, and and, and parables had this winnowing effect, this, this dividing effect that some people just could not get it. But others, they heard the stories and maybe they didn't understand all the details, but they were drawn to Jesus. They were drawn in to the stories he was telling. And you see, Jesus knew something that we've now discovered through social sciences. Here's what he knows. He knows that if you teach somebody just didactically, if you walk them through a series of truths, There's one little part of your brain that's triggered when you read a book or when you understand a truth. But when you hear a story, it's as though your brain just starts to light up, that all the receptors in your brain, when you hear a story, actually think that you're there. It's this fascinating discovery they've made through social sciences that when you hear a story, it's as though you you enter into it. There's one part of your brain that processes pain, and it processes both physical pain and emotional pain. So when you watch a movie, when you read a book, and your favorite character passes away or the story takes a turn that you were hoping it wouldn't take, the same part of your brain is triggered as when you stub your toe and go, oh, whatever you fill in the blank with there, okay? The same part of your brain. Our brains are wired for story. We enter into them and it feels as though we're there. According to Uri Hansen, the a Princeton uh, doctor, social psychologist, he said this, he said, a story is the only way to activate parts in the brain so that a listener turns the story into their own idea and their own experience. So, you ask yourself, why in the world would Jesus spend his time telling stories? One answer, because he's brilliant, (laughs) because it works, because we can listen to somebody teach didactically, but when they tell us a story, when he tells us a story about a shepherd who's lost his sheep, he has 99 in the pen, but he lost that one and he goes after it, we can resonate with that story. We hear a story about a woman who's lost a coin, one of her ten coins, and going to look for it, and we can remember that story. We hear a story about a father who has two sons, and one of them goes away, and it pricks a part of our heart, doesn't it? Either as that parent or as that child, we put ourselves in that story. It's why stories are such big business. I mean, you think about how much money the movie industry makes because we love story. Think about the way, if you've seen the movie or the musical or read the book by Victor Hugo, the, the great work uh, Les Miserables, this question of will grace win out or will law win out? Will, will Valjean come around or will not. Uh, We love story, don't we? We love the story of um, To Kill a Mockingbird, where Harper Lee paints this picture of of justice and it presses on us, the story does, to ask questions about our own life, about our own soul, about our own perspective. We love the story. um, the, The longest running Broadway performance of all time is Phantom of the Opera because it tells a story about love. It tells a story about worth. It asks through song and through picture and story, the question of what does real love look like and is beauty just skin deep? See, stories get inside of our heads, don't they? They get inside of our hearts and they mess with us a little bit. And here's what they do. They create awakening. They create awakening. They cause us to go, man, are the values that I'm holding the values that I want to hold? Is the story that I'm living the story that I want to live? Are the truths that I'm believing actually true? I mean, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the story of the prodigal son or the prodigal God, however you want to look at it, because prodigal just means recklessly lavish. And both the son and the father are pretty lavish in the story but Jesus wants to tell that story not just so that you go man isn't that awesome but oh i never i never saw that before i've never thought of it like that before i've never seen myself like that before he wants to create an awakening so why does Jesus i mean he wants to wake us up why does he tell this story Specifically, these stories in Luke 15. Let me give you just a few reasons today, and I want to ground us in this, and then my hope is it's a launching pad for moving forward into the next few weeks. So flip over to Luke 15 with me now. Luke 15. And here's the way that the stories that Jesus tells us try out of parables a, a parable of a shepherd, a parable of a woman looking for a coin, and a parable of a, of a father. Here's the way the parable starts. Here's the setting. It's really important. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. It says, now, the tax collectors and the sinners, and just a quick timeout, that's a category of people, people who all the religious folks thought were really far from God, people who were on the outskirts of society. Tax collectors had betrayed their own people in order to collect taxes uh, for Rome, but they got to keep whatever they got that was extra, whatever they charged that was over what Rome asked them to get per head. And the sinners were typically prostitutes. They were people who were just on the outskirts that nobody wanted anything to do with. And all these people are crowding around Jesus. They're drawing near to hear him and the pharisees and the scribes read the church people they grumbled saying this man receives welcomes sinners and he eats with them opening your table was akin to opening your life he welcomes them in to the deepest parts of his soul and his life he sits down and he has a meal with them and the Church people are like, Jesus, don't you know the rules? You're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to... Holiness means keeping a safe distance from people who might taint you, who might make you unclean, who might tarnish your reputation. Jesus, you should have known you should stay at a distance. And so Jesus says, well, let me give you 12 reasons why I eat with tax collectors and sinners. No, he doesn't. He says, let me me give you three stories. Let me build for you through story a structure for you to get inside of and climb around in. For you to explore your own heart and your own soul. Let me me tell you three stories that are going to prick your heart, challenge your values, create some tension, and leave you going, I'm not sure if I like that. Three stories. First one is about a shepherd who loses his sheep. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? The second story is about a woman who loses a coin, or what woman having... 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And Jesus ends this triad of parables by telling a story about a lost son. You could deduce the same question, who wouldn't go find their lost son? It's this picture Jesus is painting of what it really actually means to be lost. To be lost in these parables doesn't mean that you've failed to achieve some moral idealistic expectation that God's laid on you. That's not what it means to be lost. Jesus is repainting lostness completely. What it means to be lost in every single one of these parables is to be outside of the care and the protection of the owner, the guardian. The sheep is away from his shepherd. The coin is outside of the coin purse that is with the owner. The son is outside of the protection of the father. Jesus wants to shake us a little bit, to cause us to scratch our head, to go, well, we've always thought of lostness in categories of sinners and tax collectors, but he goes, oh, no, 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 no. All being lost means is that you're not home. That's what it means. And so what he wants to do is he wants to create a new attentiveness to lostness, lostness in each of these parables. Look up at me for a moment. As, as you're writing. <laughs> Lostness in each of these parables is relational. It's not judicial. It's not you've done a whole bunch of really bad stuff, therefore you're lost. It's you're not in contact with your father. You're not in contact. You've seen the green grass that was away from your shepherd. You went over there, and now your shepherd's protection is removed from you. That's what it means to be lost. If you're a coin, you're not in the coin bag. That, that's what it means to be lost. It's not a list of judicial, you did this wrong, that wrong, this wrong, that wrong. It's a, you're outside of the arms and care of your loving Father or guardian or shepherd, that's what it means to be lost. So for Jesus in the story that he tells about the parable of the sons, you can be lost in rebellion, and certainly the younger son was. Tells his dad, listen, I want to go and I want my money and I'm going to spend it on all the stuff that in your kingdom, in your house, you think is wrong. I'm going that direction. It's simply saying to God, God, I think my way is better than your way and I think I know better than you know. And I'm going to take my stuff and I'm going to go. It's it's lost in rebellion. But the older son is lost in religion. I mean, he's lost, he's near the father, but he refuses to go into the house. You can be lost in rebellion. You can be lost in religion. And part of how we know how we're lost is by seeing the fruit that comes out of our life. Um, If we're lost in rebellion, typically we have this deep sense in our hearts that that life is just off. That there's something missing. And so we we try to medicate that pain We try to chase after a bunch of other things to fill us up. We try our best to reconcile and solve the reality that because we're out of our father's care, the wages for our sin, for our rebellion is death. And we feel it. We feel it. But we can't live with it, and so we try to cover it. We try to put stuff into that vacuum that can never fill it up. It's the, it's the lostness through rebellion. It's interesting, if you look at Luke chapter 15, verse 24, that the father, upon his son's return home, says, My son was dead, and now he's alive again. He was away from home, and now he's home. He was dead, and now he's alive So we medicate, we become addicts, uh, we become codependent. There's a lot of different things that we do when rebellion is the way we're lost. When religion is the way we're lost, here's what it looks like. It looks like being pretty judgmental of the people around us. It looks like being fairly angry and contentious that people aren't playing our game, that people don't add up to what we think they should add up to. And it means that we have the confidence, the unshakable confidence, that we are right. And we're on an island there because everybody else is wrong, right, right. It's typically what it looks like. Jesus were telling this parable today. I don't know how he would... Describe our lostness. Certainly he'd hit rebellion, and certainly he'd hit religion because we haven't grown beyond these things. But I think he might add in, you're lost in your busyness. And maybe you're lost in your bitterness. Or you're lost in your amusement. <laughs> or you're lost in your achievement. don't know, for a second, would you just give yourself over to assuming that in some way, shape, or form, you're lost? How? How? The the stories, though, they don't end with lostness. Look at the way that the story of the woman with her coins, it tells the second part. It says, or what woman having 10 coins if she loses one of the coins, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. In the Greek, it's this picture of, I'm just, I'm going to go until I have nothing left. And when she's found it, she calls together all of her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." See, what Jesus wants to do is he paints a new picture of lostness. Are you within the home? Are you within the care? Are you within the protection of your God? And secondly, he wants to repaint the way that we view God and the way that we view ourselves. It's a new attentiveness to lostness, and it's a new appreciation of God's goodness. See, because everybody who heard Jesus tell this original story, all the tax collectors and all the sinners and all the Pharisees alike would have left scratching their head thinking to themselves, our God could not possibly be that good. If you've never thought that, may I propose to you, you've never really heard the gospel. Because the gospel presses on us to the point To cause us to ask the question, God couldn't really be that good, could he? He couldn't really love someone like me, could he? And I don't know about you, but I turn on the news at night or I swipe to the news in the morning on my phone and, man, this question just bubbles up in me, especially right now, where it seems like our whole country is either on fire or underwater, And I'm going, God, in your goodness, couldn't you just sort of spread some of that out? right? Or maybe you were questioning God's goodness when after 9-11, two prominent Christian leaders came on the news and said, this is God's judgment on sinful United States. Maybe you you had a visceral response to that like I did and thought, I'm not sure if that is the picture of our great God. I don't know. Or maybe you question God's goodness because of things that have happened closer in your home, closer in your heart. Or you go, God, I, I don't understand how you could allow that death. God, I don't understand how you could allow that trial. God, I don't know how to hear your voice when I'm walking through this valley. God, I don't know. And I just want to say, maybe you're in this place this morning and you've walked away from Faith, you've walked away from Jesus, and this is the reason. Because you can't reconcile how a good God could allow really, really difficult things. And while Jesus doesn't answer the question, how could God allow that? He does answer the question, what is God like? And here's how he describes what God is like. God is like one Who seeks, who seeks you out, who in that valley finds you and calls your name and invites you home. He's that kind of God. who who refuses to let you just wander off if you're the sheep that thought you found some green grass somewhere and strayed away. What is God like? God is like a shepherd who goes after the one. God is like a woman who seeks to find and sweeps her whole house until she finds that one coin. This is a picture of the way God reacts to quote-unquote lost humanity, and I just, I want, to, I want it to shake us this morning for us to walk away and go, I don't know the answers to all the questions about pain and trials and all the things that happen in our world that we would change if we could. I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do know the answer to this. Is God good? Yes. Does God love us? Yes. Is God for us? Yes. Unequivocally, passionately, diligently for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in writing to his friend Titus, will say this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, his name is Jesus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we were awesome, but because he is but by according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the invitation. That's the picture that the story of The shepherd and the coin and the father points out to you, you may think that you are far from God this morning and you may be far from God this morning, but I want to assure you he is not far from you, that he is chasing you down. He's the hound of heaven, as the great poem says refusing to let you go. And so, if that is the case, let me just sort of, as a side note, add, sometimes our narrative about humanity is pretty negative as followers of Jesus. And our view of humanity is we are just simply unworthy. And to that I would say, yes, depending on how you define that. If we mean by unworthy, we haven't earned our way to God, I'd say yes and amen. That's what unworthy means. But here's what we've done we've confused being unworthy with having no worth. And I want to say that that's a lie from the absolute pit of hell. That according to the scriptures, you have great worth, according to the scriptures, you have great value. So much value that the shepherd would leave 99 to go find the one, and this just in, you're the one. That he'd leave the nine coins, she'd leave the nine coins to go and find the one, and we're the one. You may be unworthy and that you cannot get there on your own, But rest in the fact today, friends, that you have great worth, so much worth, that the king of heaven left his throne to come and to bring you home. And so the woman, she seeks diligently, and then she celebrates lavishly. I mean, almost ridiculously so. The picture that Jesus paints through the story, it jars the Pharisees because they go, why in the world would someone throw such a strong party after finding just one little stupid coin? I mean, it would be like Kelly and I throwing a celebration after finding the Lego that we were missing under our couch. Praise Jesus! We've got 12 billion of them in our house somewhere, but we got the one. We got the, yeah, we look at it and we go, oh, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. You know what's ridiculous is his goodness. That's That's what's ridiculous. And Jesus wants the story to wake you up. He wants it to wreck us a little bit. Because when I don't believe that God is good, I resort to control. I resort to manipulation. I resort to medication. I resort to addiction. I resort to judgment. When I don't believe that God is good, I resort to control. But when I believe God is good, I can let him be in control. And it turns out, he's not that bad at that. As Martin Luther, I think, aptly put, he said, true faith, this is true faith, a living confidence in the goodness of God. If you flip back over to Matthew 15, here's how Jesus ends this section of scripture. It's pretty interesting because he quotes from the book of Isaiah and this will wrap up our initial God give us awareness of what you're doing here. Here's what he says. After saying I tell parables to wake people up to stir receptivity according to Peterson's paraphrase. Verse 14, indeed in their case, the people who have not yet responded, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, saying, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown cold, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. So he goes, this is the reality Apart from me coming and apart from me telling stories and apart from me awakening humanity, they're just going to go on with the monotony of life because their hearts are cold. (laughs) But then he uses this really interesting word, this word, lest. If you were to go and look it up in the Greek, it's most commonly translated when. But, But when, when they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and what? Turn and go, oh, this is the story we're living in. I'm, I'm lost, and God's good. That's the story. And then, and then, and then, I would, what? Heal them. Heal them. And if we think that Jesus does not want to heal people or invite people into what he's doing in the world, we haven't read the Bible because he says it really clearly. And we should always interpret um, less clear passages in light of more clear passages. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter two, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. He's going, I am the great physician. And I long to and love to heal the broken, bind up the brokenhearted, set free the captives that the blind may see and the deaf may hear. That's what he says he came to do. And one of his most common methods is story. And one of his most common invitations is to wholeness. Wholeness to peace, and it turns out that wholeness is homeness, which isn't a word (laughs) until today. (laughs) Let me ask you a question as you're starting to put your stuff away. Do you like the direction your life is heading? Are you, are you pleased with where you're going? If so, my hope is that the next few weeks would just reinforce the ground that you're standing on. But if not, if not, can I encourage you that Jesus' invitation to turn and be healed is on the table and it's that freedom that we're going to be pursuing over the next few weeks. If you don't like the way your life is heading, then this invitation to wholeness and goodness is for you because we're all in some way lost. And the invitation this, over the next few weeks is, to be, is going to be to come home. To come home. There's a story about a, a boy named John. And John grew up in this pious Christian home in the early 1700s. And his mom trained him in the catechisms of the church and taught him how to follow the way of God. But when he was seven years old, his, father passed, or his mother passed away and he went to go and be with his dad more. And his dad was a captain of a ship. And so from the age of 11 to the age of 17, he did five voyages on ship, which back in that day were tumultuous to say the least. And he grew up to be a ship captain Himself, and drifted from that faith that was a part of his early upbringing and a big part of his heart. And it was March 21st of 1748 <laughs> that a huge storm came up. And he was holding on so he didn't get swept away into the open sea off the ship. And as he did so, the words of his mother came back to his mind. The words of St. Thomas Kempis in his great little work, Imitation of Christ, came to his heart. And he wanted to believe, but he had these doubts that all the things that he'd done, all the evils that he'd perpetrated, all the things that he'd been a part of as being a slave trader, captain of ships, that God would never, ever welcome him home. And if you were to ask John, he would tell you that that was the hour he first believed. And he went on to not only give his life to Jesus and trust that God's grace would be sufficient for him, but he had this awakening in his life where he went on to be a pastor. And he went on to partner with William Wilberforce in confronting the evils of the slave trade. And he was one of the greatest advocates of Great Britain coming to the point where they said, we don't want this as a part of our society anymore. It was this awakening on that ship that changed his entire life. And out of that awakening, he wrote this great hymn A great hymn about lostness, about goodness, and about wholeness. It's a hymn that's our invitation throughout the course of this series. Friends, welcome to the freeway. Welcome to God's amazing grace. Would you stand and we'll close our time singing together.